Today we talked to Chris, the founder of Black Cat Systems. His website, blackcatsystems.com, offers a large variety of radio decoding software and other applications of interest to the SDR and ham radio hobbyist. You're listening to Signals Everywhere, the After the Show podcast. Big shout out to Sean, the newest patron of Signals Everywhere, and happy holidays to all our listeners. Chris, let's get started with a little bit about yourself. Um, how did your interest in radio communications get started, and what really inspired you to create Black Cat Systems? Okay, great, Harold. Sure. Uh, let's see. I've, uh, I've been a radio hobbyist since uh, I was about 12 years old or so, so back in the late 1970s. Um, when I, uh, found my dad's portable short, shortwave radio and I've, and I've, and I've been hooked into it since, since then, um, I got into computers back into the 19, back in the 1980s. So it seemed like a, like a natural fit. I, I started to write my own apps and soft and software, uh, and then finally started to sell things back in, I guess the mid 1990s or so. I think my first program was a mini neck based uh and antenna app. Uh and then I've just kind of been, you know, building since uh then I uh went full I went full time doing this back in uh I guess 2004 and I've been uh doing it since. Well, that's quite a while to uh you know, kind of be working on different software projects. What was that uh, first application written in? Do you recall? Oh uh, yeah, the first. I uh, see the first uh, program, the Mininec one, was done in Microsoft Quick Basic on the Mac. Uh, and that actually that was probably done in the mm, late 1980s, I guess. I had done some dabbling with the Apple II and the Atari back in the early 80s. I don't think I ever saw, sold anything based on that. I think I tried to. I have vague memories of making some floppy disks and taking them to a ham to a ham fest back back in the eighties. I don't think I actually sold any though. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so the mini neck app was done in Quick Basic. Uh, there wasn't much available for doing stuff on the Mac back then. I think it was all officially from Apple. It was all Pascal, um, and that was something I didn't really want to go down. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah, I've played around with some of the old uh, Apple Mac uh, Macintoshes, and uh, I haven't really done much on the programming side of that. Um, I've played around with Basic a little bit, but not a whole lot. I guess that kind of really took off uh, from there because I know uh, I see that you have some apps are written for Windows, some for OS X. Then we have Android and iOS. Um, so I imagine you you've probably maybe not necessarily mastered, but you certainly know your way around uh, quite a number of programming languages at this point. Yeah, most of my desktop apps are written in what's called Zojo, which is a renamed version of the old Real Basic, uh, which is kind of, I guess you could call it uh, the Max version of Visual Basic. Uh, and it lets you build cross-platform apps. Uh, so with the same code, you can build an app that runs on the Mac, runs on Windows, uh, runs on Linux also, although the market for that's pretty much the null set, um, so I don't I don't really dabble in in uh, that. And then I've also and then I also use um, Xcode for writing the i the iOS apps and for some of the Mac only apps. Oh, and then of course I also use Visual C on on Windows. So yeah, I, I kind of have to. Kind of be pretty well rounded. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Zojo is not really great for doing a lot of real time stuff by itself. Kind of like if if you've you know used Visual Basic, uh, but you can call your own shared libraries. So like for my SSTV apps or Fax apps and you know other other ones like like that that where you have to do some uh, DSP, I call a uh, shared library written in C. Well, that definitely helps out for sure. Um, I can't imagine having to write something from scratch, you know, five, six, seven times every time you want it to, to go at it. So being able to call a library definitely helps, uh, especially if um, you want to base it around something that's uh, already existing. Right, right. I mean, I've I've been doing, you know, a lot of my apps I've been doing in one form or the other for, you know, 20 or so 
years now. So uh, what's what's in the apps I se- I sell now is kind of what I had back then. Although of course it's been written, rewritten, modified, and you know so on over the years. But yeah, it, it's it's certainly nice that the bulk of the code can be pretty much the same. I mean the user interface part of most of my apps that are both Mac and Windows, that code's 99% the same. So you don't have to rewrite that. And even the DSP code, uh, the low level stuff is probably 90, 90% the same. Um, you just deal with the fact that you don't call the functions quite the same way on the Mac versus on Windows. Um, but it's a lot easier than if you had to rewrite everything by itself, you know. Oh, from sure, for sure. I can only imagine. I mean, there's definitely a lot of code to any of those applications, and um, as you know, the more of it you can reuse, the better. Um, how, how long have you been? Well, I guess not how long necessarily, but uh, you know, obviously, you've been programming for quite a while. Has uh, Black Cat Systems really kind of become um, a business for you, a professional thing, or is it more of uh, a side hobby to you um, than anything else? Oh yeah, I've I've been doing this full full time since uh 2004. That's that's when I left my last day job. Um so I guess about fifth about 15 years now. Uh, I had a little bit of a overlap time period where I was doing both. Um and then finally got to the point where hey, I've actually I'm actually able to, you know, do this full full time now, which is really nice. I've got four, I've got four, four, four kids. So being able to work from home definitely helps in many ways. Of course, there's also downsides to having four kids and working at home, but, uh, for sure. I, I definitely could see both sides of that. I, um, I only have one at the moment, uh, love him to death. He's a handful though. Um, and you know, I've worked, uh, some at home jobs and I've worked, um, others where I'm away for, for longer periods of time. And, um, you know, like you said, there's definitely an up and down to it. Uh, you know, it's, it's real nice to be home, be with the family. And at the same time, uh, sometimes it's difficult to find an hour out of the day where it can be quiet, where I can go and record something. So it just kind of, kind of varies day to day. Yeah. You, you really have to, I think if you're going to work at home with your family, you have to be fairly flexible about your work hours. You know, that it's, it's not a nine, to, it's not a nine to five type thing. Uh, it's certainly now that the kids are back at school, I'm definitely getting more done. Oh, I'm sure. I, I, I'm sure I can only imagine. Uh, most of my work gets done between 9 PM and midnight, uh, because that's usually when I have uh, the most free time available, uh, unless it's a weekend anyhow. Um, oh yeah, Definitely. I, uh, I, I tend to be a, a morning person myself, but I, but I certainly think, think, think along the same ways. I probably get most of my stuff done, you know, from the moment they go out the door to maybe sometime after noon. And then it all kind of goes downhill from there. Yeah, I could imagine. Um, jumping to, uh, another question that I had here though, um, you know, you've got, you've got a ton of software here. I'm really curious which one of these, um, really seems to be your favorite what's one that kind of has that special uh you know feeling to it that you know maybe you put extra work into or perhaps it was just a a unique project for you oh i'd say my favorite app of all of mine is probably soundbite that's the uh sound automation app uh basically it m it kind of is based on the idea i'm not sure if if you recall the old style cart machines radio stations had uh basically they uh they're basically the the idea was you had a whole bunch of recordings they were like little eight tracks almost let's say and the dj could just push it in to play a song play an ad play a jingle whatever and this was an app i wrote to kind of emulate that idea except you you had a large grid of buttons and you can assign a sound file basically to each button and so you so you push a you know sound file uh push a button and it plays that sound file um it was something i kind of written for myself virtually all of these all the apps i sell 
And, you know, if you look at them, it's a really wide range. The common thread is they're all things I wrote for myself first. So, right. You built the tool because you had a, a, you know, a use for it and then kind of went from there because you knew um, other people might find them useful as well. Right. I mean, and many of these apps I wrote for myself with one particular use in mind for me. And then I start getting people writing back, Hey, I use it for this. And it's something a little different. Can you add this feature? Can you add that feature? And and (laughs) like all software, it grows and grows and grows. And pretty soon you get to the point where you're like, I've even had cases with that in some of my other apps, people asking me, can it do X? And at first I think, no, it can't do X. And I have to think about it for a bit. Well, maybe it can do that. I have to look up and go, oh yeah, it actually can. Uh, you know, I mean, that's that's something I've been I've been working on since the 90s and it's just grown and grown. It's it's used by radio stations, by podcasters, by hams. You know, you can put a bunch. I think I have some hams using it. You uh, put a bunch of your calls on there uh, or if you're, of course, big into doing contests, you can have a button. So you don't have to say the same thing over and over again. Right. So they could have, you know, do an automated CQ or you could even have, say, um, various slow scan event uh, images ready to go. Uh, yeah, I could definitely see where uh, even in like the amateur radio world, you could really make a, a good right, use. Right. Of you can, you know, do all of all of all of those things. Um, so, yeah, basically most of the apps that I've written have been something that I wrote for myself and they tend to evolve a little bit over time. Um, I mean, there's there's a few of the apps I've written for myself that are really niche market and necessarily haven't taken off. Um, but that's, you know, that's fine also. Well, yeah, you're going to run into, I'm sure, the whole gambit uh, either way you look at it. Um, I mean... I don't know. I always have fun uh, with that sort of thing. Um, you know, I've written a couple small applications in Python, which is um, not a bad language by any means. It's just one of those where I know I can only dive into something so deep. Um, and I'm still kind of picking up those skills. But, um, you know, I've had before where I've released an application and it did just this one thing I needed it to do. And, you know, before I know it, there's six other people who are like, "Ooh, this is really cool, but could it do this? And uh, like you said, it's it's certainly a, a way to uh, exponentially grow uh, the size of an application pretty quickly, uh, depending you know how many people are interested and in, in what all they're looking to do with it. Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I can't think of all the ideas by myself, you know, and so it's I really like it when people write and say, hey, could you have it do this or have it do that? Because often it's something that I would have never thought of on my own. But I'm like, yeah, that's a really good idea. Uh, I mean, yeah, of course, you have to filter things. Sometimes you'll get people to ask for things and it's out of the scope of what the app can can do. Or, of course, you get people ask you things who don't know how software works and then you're kind of like, and that's not really possible. <laughs> right. But, Sometimes uh you get something a little outlandish, I'm sure. Oh yeah. You you uh you had mentioned Python. Um I had actually not really done a lot of serious work with Python until just recently. Uh I had dabbled with it when I got a Raspberry Pi, I guess a few years ago, but never did a lot. And then about um a year ago, maybe less, I got one of the Kiwi SDRs. And which I've set up here and I and I have it online also so that others can use it. And uh, I had found um, uh, one of the uh, programs someone had written for it was in, was in Python. It was uh, to record audio. I thought that was neat. And then I was thinking about it. It's like, oh, actually something I've wanted to do is be able to easily route the audio from my Kiwi to one of my, one of my, uh, software decoding apps but without having to use the virtual audio cable in the pc and like set your web browser to run the sound to that because that was always a hassle um so i modified the code uh so that you could connect to any kiwi and it would route the audio itself to the virtual audio cable and that was like the first semi-serious thing that i did in python um and it's actually, and I, I've since doing that, I'm, I've, uh, I definitely appreciate 
Python now. It's really neat. Yeah, it's a really cool um, little programming language, especially for, I, I guess I would say, quick prototyping. If you just want to see if you can throw an idea together and, and go from there. Um, sometimes it, it seems like the right language for what I want to do. Sometimes um, maybe it's not necessarily the right fit, but it's still a good way to, you know, there's all these libraries over here. There's some, you know, code that you know, 30 people have written and doing something similar. Most of the time I can mesh a few things together and, and get, at least get what I need done, um, you know, up and running, at least give me a proof of concept. Right. Yes. Um, I don't know that I would try myself to write a major large application in it, but yes, for doing certain specific things, it's really, really good. And, you know, you can get results fast. And, and, and as you said, there's so much example code out, out there that you can use and then you can build, build on that. Um, I'm still having a hard time getting used to the idea how you have to indent everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I dabbled with a couple other languages too, and it was weird getting uh kind of used to that change in the in the different syntax um, yeah but. it's funny because i'll do stuff in that or basic or c or assembly or whatever and everything's a little different and sometimes i'll catch myself and i'm writing some c code but i'm typing stuff in basic and like wait a minute that's not right <laughs> what am i doing you know uh i have to right yeah i have <laughs> to think it's kind of like someone who can speak multiple languages you know, you, you, you know, you're talking and you're, and you shift to the, you know, other language. Absolutely. Or at the very least, it's almost like a uh, different dialects. Uh, the, the syntax differences can be uh, um, just outstanding. At oh yeah, sometimes. definitely. Um, one of the apps in particular, I was really curious about though, um, or those that kind of involve decoding. So like I'm looking at one here now, it's the HF Weatherfax uh, Marine Radio Decoder. So I'm curious here for the decoder itself, is that a uh, like a pre-written library you're using from somewhere else? Or did you have to actually learn how to dissect that signal and then decode it uh, kind of uh, by hand there? Oh, no, that's, that's code I written myself. That's based on the code I wrote. My first fax decoder was in my... Uh, app for the Mac called Multimode that came out uh, back in the, again, back in the nineties. <laughs> that was because at that time I had a Mac, I didn't have a PC and there wasn't a lot of software out. There wasn't anything out for the Mac to, uh, to be able to decode anything. In fact, that started as an app to just decode Morse code. And I think I added radio teletype and then PSK 31 and fax and SSTV, you know, and, so on. So yeah, for the HF Weatherfax app, um, the main application is written in Zojo, which is the Visual Basic-like app. So that handles the user interface. The decoding software is in C, and that's an evolved version of the coding software that I first wrote back in the 90s. Um, so yeah, I had to learn how do you decode, you know, how is Weatherfax sent? And it's very similar if you know how SSTV is sent. Uh, it's the same idea, basically, with with SSTV. Um, or if you think about it, it's like the it's like the original black and white SSTV. So you're sending grayscale, and you encode black as fifteen hundred hertz audio, white twenty three hundred hertz audio, and all the shades of gray are different tones between those two. And the pixels are sent line by line. If you listen to it, it sounds like a slowed down version of SSTV. Uh, a new line is sent every half second. That makes sense. It does actually sound like it's a bit slower than uh, what I traditionally hear. We did do, uh, during the live stream, uh, we did a little bit of the uh, the HF weather facts. That was interesting having that uh, come down. Um, as, far as, um, as far as the decoding here, um, it's really cool to see how, you know, that, I don't know if it's necessarily a library or if it was just part of the application you had written. Um, it's just really cool how you kind of layered over time between an application for, you know, one specific use to now this same piece of code is, is being used over here to decode weather facts. Uh, just really cool. Um, 
Uh, what was the before I get to the next question? What was the name of that software you said you were writing this in? Because it was I've heard of a lot of cross um, compiling, you know, software for for applications and such, but um, that one I I don't think I've heard of. Zojo uh, X O J O. I, I suspect their website's Zojo It's the old Real Basic, uh, which had another name before Real Basic, and I don't even remember what that's called. I got into it after it had changed names. Interesting. And yeah. So it's it's kind of a um, you know like Visual Basic basically um, for Windows, Mac, and Linux. And um, it's sort of an, think of it as an object-oriented basic. So this is not basic like, you know, back in the old days where you have line, you know, line numbers and all of that. It's an object-oriented language. It's the same as if you've been writing it in C or whatever else. You have the same basic, you know, you, you know the same basic method um, of coding. And uh, it's really nice. And what I really like about it the most, what got me on it, um, is that in general, you don't have to do a lot of platform-specific coding. When you write your code, it works on Windows. It works, it works on the Mac. Uh, you don't have to tweak a lot of things. Yeah, I'll have to uh, look into that. It definitely... Uh might give me the opportunity to maybe give it another shot. It's been a while since I've tried to do anything for, say, uh, Android. I've had a, an app or two that was basically just a welcome screen, and that's about <laughs> as far as I've gotten there. Right. <laughs> um, the uh, just, just getting up the development environment for uh, Android and Java is just, I don't know, it makes my head spin. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they, they don't do Android yet. They just recently started to support building for iOS, although they're talking about supporting Android also. So the Android, oh, I see. So, so the, the Android support's not in there. All the Android apps I've written were done with the standard Android development stuff, which I have to say out of all of my development platforms is my least favorite. It is... It just seems so kind of clunky to me i i, I don't know it Maybe um i lack of skill there but it 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 epitomizes the joke of open source <laughs> it it is just painful to use i just it's like oh my god this is bad you know and it's funny because every time i run and run into a an issue using something else though i think gee it could be worse i could be doing this on android <laughs> <laughs> well there you go but <laughs> just flipping mm -hmm. through some some of the other software you have here um didn't have any really real questions about this one i just thought it was cool to see um the rf toolbox here because i've seen the last thing i've used that could actually uh calculate a, a yagi decently was uh quick yagi 4 right. and that's honestly still what i use today so it's kind of cool to see uh a more updated uh, application that has the Yagi support. Yeah, that was, again, one of those apps that I had found myself, you know, there's all these little calculations you need to do, and, you know, looking for a website to do this, looking for one to do that, doing it by hand, and so I would just continuously add stuff to it whenever I had a need. Hey, I need to do this, I need to do that. I mean, there's simple stuff in there like, you know, LC filters, and uh, there's a resistor color code. Uh, and that's just kind of my catch-all, you know. Um, one of the more fun apps I uh, I um, did is my uh, um, amalgamated DGPS. I don't know if if you've looked at uh, that one yet. No, what's uh, uh, I have to go to my website to find it here. Uh, <laughs> I can't find everything. Um, if if you're on any of my pages and you look over on the left hand side uh under amateur radio programs uh dgps decoding if you go to like yeah, fine. yeah, okay. Okay. yeah i see it here. basically um the u.s I'll, i can give you a little short a little short history here maybe um it's kind of funny though because a lot of the dgps stations are going off off the off the air now here in the in the u.s uh, back in the 90s, I guess, the U.S. Coast Guard set up a site of differential GPS radio stations. They transmit down on the long wave band. 
I actually kind of right right between long wave, medium wave, uh, between 285 and 325 kilohertz. And what these sites do is they transmit a um, error signal basically for GPS so that in conjunction with the GPS receiver, you can use the data from this site to increase your accuracy. Interesting. Okay, and this was something that was they implemented back in the 90s, especially when most consumer GPS receivers didn't have that great of an accuracy. And so where you needed a little bit better. This was intended to be used for maritime applications uh, to supplement LoRaN C, basically, which, of course, now is also off the air. Um, anyway, they, so they transmit error data, which isn't interesting by itself. The interesting part is that each station has its own ID. There's hundreds of these stations around the world. So of course, for us radio hobbyists, these become DX opportunities. So, um, there had been several DGPS decoders written. They, they send a FSK signal basically. Uh, over over and over again. If you hear them, they, okay. they have a very char- characteristic sound. So anyway, each station has this, has its own ID code. So if you can tune into a, a station off the ID and the frequency that it's on, you can figure out who it is. So of course, there became a sub-hobby within the radio hobby of people tuning into these to see how far away can you pick up something. And I got into that. Like, oh, that's fun. Well, there's, you know, um, 80 DGPS channels on the air. And so you have stations possibly on all of these and you tune back and forth and you might miss something. So once SDRs came out, I was like, well, wait a minute. Why do I have to decode only one station at the same time or one frequency at the same time? I want to decode all of them. So I wrote an app that can take the IQ recording files from an SDR, and in the software, it essentially sets up 80, 80 radio receivers all running in, all running in parallel <laughs> and 80 FSK decoders. Actually, no, 160, because each frequency, the station, some of the stations transmit 100 baud, some of them are 200 baud. So I set up 160 decoders running at the same at the same time and you can go through the entire file file so there's a group of us that record overnight since you know this is like long wave so you so you get the best uh you generally get the best the best dx overnight when it's dark and you record your 12 hours or so and then you run it through this and uh this kind of is one of the models i have of um Software tools, I call it software tools for lazy DXers. So you don't have to do the work yourself. It does the work (laughs) for you. So you run your file through, and then at the end, you look, and you get a nice list of of, of all the stations that it picked up and how many valid decodes it got for each. And then if you want to, you can look for each one. You can get a whole, you can get a list of, you know, all the, all the actual raw data. Um, but it was like, well, why should I have to sit by the radio right. in real time and, you know, do this when I can have the computer do the work for me? So, and this is one of the, one of these things that today we can do because the computers are fast enough, you know, 20 years ago, you just couldn't possibly do this. That's really cool though. I've never actually heard of this particular service. I might actually, uh, I might have to get a, a loop up in the air and take a listen sometime. Yeah, there's the unfortunately, well, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your point of view, the Coast Guard last year started to decommission their stations. So they've been shutting them down. Um, there's a there's a few dozen left in the U.S. and by the end of next year, they're supposed to all be off the air. The ones that were supposed to be closed this year, they haven't closed all of them down, even though they were supposed to be shut by the end of the fiscal year last month. So I don't know if they forgot to turn them off or what happened. Um, the good side of that um, is that with the U.S. stations off the air, obviously it makes picking up the DX stations easier. Yeah, for sure. Um, huh, that's cool though. I'll uh, 
Yeah, I'll have to take a listen, see if I can uh, hear some of them before it's uh, too late. Yeah, if uh, there's a group of us who post uh, the logs, one of the websites I help run, maybe you've you've been on it, the uh, HF Underground site. Uh, it's been a while, but yeah, yeah. I've, I've been there a couple times. There's a dedicated forum there just where uh, some of us post our nightly DGPS logs. So, um, you know, now that we're moving into winter, conditions are getting better. Typically, here on the East Coast during the winter, I can get stations from Europe. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, this, this, uh, this, the reason this was kind of fun to do is because this is an app that basically does a lot of brute force decoding to attempt to pull uh, weak signals out of the noise. Um, the, the DGPS packets are about 60 bits long. There's a header, there's your data, and then there's a very simple checksum. So what the software does is it basically looks at the signal and continuously shifts the received audio through time looking for what appears to be a valid decode. So I did the math, and now I forget what the numbers are. But when you've got 160 channels, and I'm basically looking at each one shifting every audio sample over, you know, you're doing millions of these per second. So it's it's kind of a very intensive um, thing. Again, something that back in the you know 90s or even 10 or 15 years ago, you really couldn't do. Um, and it's uh, it uh, takes advantage of all of the cores you have, so uh, it will turn on your fans. And again, it's kind of a, you know one of these apps that is not necessarily it doesn't do something really serious, but it's just more for fun. I mean, and that's it's still a really cool application, and that's definitely um, not even something I would have thought of. Uh, like I said, I, I didn't know that these uh, particular systems are around, so it's pretty cool. And um, you know, like you were saying too, um, you know, ten fifteen years ago wasn't going to happen, and uh, you know, SDR really has, at least I should say, SDR at its its current um, cost point is really something that. Um, it's kind of changed the game for a lot of people in a lot of different industries, uh, especially when it comes to obviously radio communication and, uh, you know, audio decoders, things of that nature, um, just really increased what you can, you know, do with something. Oh, I agree hundred percent. SDR is probably the most important thing, uh, that's happened to the radio hobby. Um, it is a game changer and I have gotten rid of my analog radios. Um, I have my old R71A is downstairs in the basement. I have it hooked up to a long wire and I'll use it now and then, but um, I really, um, they are just so much better. I, in fact, it's, it's funny. Once I started, you know, using SDRs and looking at the waterfall I realized when I used an old-fashioned radio with a knob, it was like I felt I was blind because I couldn't see. I couldn't see the RF anymore. I mean, that's easily, I think, probably hands down one of the biggest aspects to SDR for, for most hobbyists and, and even some professional users. You look at it, and you know, I remember back when I had just a regular old analog scanner, You know, it could be scanning this frequency way over here, and then at the same time, something's going on, you know, lower in frequency, and you'd have no way of knowing that. You could have stuff happening all the time. Um, like I like to go out and listen for uh, data packets, see if I can find telemetry from something. And when you have uh, an analog scanner and voice, uh, it's very easy to miss those short bursts of traffic. Um, but to have that wide waterfall where you can see everything, um, definitely, definitely a game changer to be able to see hey, I'm listening to this, but, you know, 150 kilohertz over here, this is going on. And and it gives you that ability to kind of look around and, and do more than you would have uh, previously. Oh, yeah, it's definitely the way to go. I have several SDRs now. And, you know, I've, um, I've been a big pirate radio hobbyist for, you know, you know listener for many years now. And um, for... I don't know how many years now, I record the entire 43-meter band, which is 6,800 to 7,000 7, kilohertz, uh, every night in 24 hours weekends. 
and it allows you to catch stations that you would otherwise miss. Um, I, I recall I've been listening to Pirates since the late 70s, and, you know, back then, um, I think we caught only a small percentage of what was actually on, on the air. And this was, of course, back before the Internet, back before BBSs even. So, you know, you would wait for your next ACE newsletter to come in the mail and find out what was on the air two or three months ago. I mean, and that's definitely one of the the better uses for it too. I've seen is is just recording such huge um, swaths of bandwidth. There was somebody a while back. I remember when uh, the Hacker F was first released. One of the big ways they demonstrated it was recording an entire HF band and then replaying it um, a few moments later, um, and and being able to have that entire spectrum, you know, right there being replayed and and to even capture that much. Um, the hacker F for people who don't know, uh, those go up to uh, 20 mega samples per second. So you're looking at just about, you know, 20 megahertz of bandwidth. And uh, that that's a pretty big swath of band uh, bandwidth to be able to kind of look at in one spot and, and see what's going on. Oh, yeah, I, I actually funny you mentioned it. I just picked up a hack RF a few months ago and it is really neat. Um and yeah, in fact, we're, we're kind of getting to the point now in some ways with the SDRs, with the wide bandwidth that you've got data overload. You know, it's how do you process all of that and how do, and, you know, how, how, how do you find things in it? Uh, well, and uh, another one of the apps I wrote, it's, um, it's just called My SDR Playback. It's an app that I wrote for myself. And basically it takes a IQ file and... Rather than, you know, most of the time what, what you do is you take your IQ recording file and you run it back through your SDR app again, watching it. What this does is it takes the file and generates one large static waterfall image over time. I think every line is like one second. And so if you look at a half an hour file, you can see that entire half an hour of time and where all the transmissions are. You can then select one of them, pick the demodulation mode you want to use, AM, SSB, you know, so on, and then actually play it back. Interesting. So it's almost using it like a uh, like a long-term or a long-time span uh, spectrum analyzer. Exactly. Because I got to the point where I was doing these overnight recordings of the 43-meter band, and it's like, okay, I've got 12 hours of recordings. Now what do I do? You know, and the normal thing that most people did, I think most people still do, is you run it back through your SDR app and watch it in effectively delayed real time. Well, that takes 12 hours. I don't have 12 hours. So again, the whole the whole lazy DXer mode what 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 can I do to make this go faster? Is each file gets converted into one static image? You know, if if your time resolution's one second, that's still short enough that you can right. pick up things. Right. So you get one large image uh, that represents half an hour over whatever bandwidth, and you can see all the transmissions. And you just use the mouse, and you just pick one of them, and it'll be it'll play it back in effect and, and let you uh, listen to it. So that lets me go through 12 hours of recordings in literally 15 minutes, assuming I don't find anything that I actually want to listen to. Um, that unfortunately, and probably one of the reasons why it's not very popular, it's a free app, but it's for the Mac only. Uh, yeah, that could do it. Uh, so the, the intersection of um, shortwave radio hobbyists and Macintosh is not quite the null set, but it's a pretty small set. Um, I keep that's one that's been on my list to rewrite uh, as a cross-platform app, but uh, it never seems to happen. It would certainly come in handy, but uh, yeah, I've got a lot of kind of little projects on the back burner that who knows when I'll get to them. Um, because I, I, I just know every new project is this huge can of worms I don't have time for. So uh, I kind of got to be careful exactly. and pick and choose what I go to. Yeah. Uh, that was, again, a case of where if I had probably written it cross-platform at first, it, it would have been nice. 
but for whatever reason, I did that Mac only. And um, I keep starting to write a new version of it and getting a little bit in it. And then something else that I have to work on pulls me you know, away. That's kind of how I've been with the um, the Ham Radio Tweets project I did a while back. Um, incredibly simple application. It didn't do a whole lot. But essentially, uh, I wrote it in Ruby. It was one of my first Ruby applications. And all it does is it uses a Twitter API and then socket so that way it can connect to the APRS IS network um, filter for what its call sign is registered as and then it'll take that message and it'll tweet it out on Twitter so the idea was was a one-way Twitter uh, excuse me APRS to Twitter gateway Um, the problem was if anything happened to the network the application would die and it wouldn't restart so Uh. I kept meaning to rebuild that in Python or maybe even C sharp and I just, I'd get halfway through it. Something came up and I, I still haven't finished it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, uh, I, I have a lot of apps that are kind of on the back burner or are partially done. You know, they're in the, it mostly works, but it's really kind of ugly stage. Uh, oh, another one of my lazy D XR apps is that way. Uh, Carrier Sleuth which um, you can find again over on the left, if you want to look on the page on the left-hand side there. Okay, yeah, I got it here. All right. Uh, Basically, um, this is for a subset of medium-wave DXers. Basically, you know, on a standard AM channel, you've got dozens, hundreds of of, uh, AM stations, Uh, all theoretically on the same frequency, like 1280 kilohertz. But, of course, every transmitter is off frequency a tiny bit and it turns out that if you do really high resolution ffts you can distinguish one station from the other if you uh, look on the on the web page there there's a sample waterfall and uh, basically you zoom in and you're looking at maybe a 30 or 40 hertz wide fft and so you can tune to one of the AM channels and you can see dozens of radio stations at the same time, even though if you're listening, you might only hear two or three of them. Interesting. So there's more stations there that you can hear, just that the typical, I guess, bandwidth of the, the front end is, is preventing you from hearing them all. Well, you've, yeah, I mean, you really, it's, you've got, a few of the stations are really strong, and so they're dominant, and so those are the ones you're going to hear. Everything else is, relatively speaking, super weak. So you can't hear the audio from it, but the carrier's still there. So if you, if you can zoom in, you can see all of those. I think the sample on the webpage I showed there is for 1,600. And you can see there's dozens of them. And what's interesting is many of the character many of the carriers have characteristics or I like to, I like to call them fingerprints. Uh, some of them have a like a sawtooth waveform and funny little things. And I I believe that's due to the regulation of the of the oscillator itself. It might be thermal, it might be that there's a air conditioner that turns on and off. And I understand from the more serious medium wave DXers than than me that there are many who can use this and they can actually tell one station from the other based upon that. Um, oh, okay. See, I see. That's wow. That's really interesting. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't even have thought to look at something like that. The other thing you can see is you can see when stations fade in. Like if, uh, our our listeners can't see this, but maybe you can post a link to the to the uh, image here. Uh, if you're looking at the 1600 one, if you look over on the left underneath 1599 point about nine six or so, there's a carrier that appears at around o three hundred. You can see a faint okay. line. That's a station that faded in then. Huh. So this was what July 28th. So this was during summer. So this was probably a West Coast station. That faded in so you can look at that and you can see things now what's interesting is that the the software looks of course at not only the u.s and canadian 10 kilohertz channels you can look at the european and asian 9 kilohertz channels also 
And it's quite possible to see stations from Europe, Africa, and Asia fading in that are still too weak for you to actually hear, but you can see the carriers. So, uh, you know, it's another form of DXing. That's cool. Yeah, I've never looked at those. Look at that. Um, this is doing, you know, I've, you know, to get this kind of resolution, you're obviously doing very large FFTs. Right. I think the app, the app lets you do up to a 16 or 32 million point FFT. Wow. Because again, you're, you're trying to look for subhertz, you know, variation. So you have to do super long FFTs. Uh, the downside is that it takes a, a it can take a long time to process these files. If your if your computer is not fast enough, it can actually take like three hours to process a two hour file. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know those IQ files can be uh, insanely large you, too. Yes, I, I I've done tests here where I'll set my SDR up as like a sixteen hundred or two megahertz wide, so I can record the entire medium wave band at one at one time and then you can process everything but it eats up your hard drive oh it does really bad um i've actually been trying to figure out um a proper way for sharing iq files at, at one point i was running a uh, a torrent um, site specifically for iq files but um, what i'd like to eventually do is see if i can find a way to do uh something kind of like web sdr where you have a web-based waterfall mm -hmm. in the browser um, but stream it using WebTorrent. So you could actually stream down those um, waterfalls in real time. So if you just wanted to see what a signal looked like or listen to that signal without mm -hmm. fully downloading the IQ, you could. Um, oh, yeah, that would... Development there is not anywhere near ready, but I'd like <laughs> to at some point uh, get to that. Oh, sure. You should be able to really reduce the data rate huge. But yeah, as, as you were saying, the, 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 the problem with, with the IQ files, especially if you try to do something like record the entire you know, medium wave band, is I think at, at, at that band, I think I like a two megahertz sample rate, my, my IQ files run something like a two gigabyte files, like six minutes or something. It's ridiculous. Um, I guess if, if you're doing the standard medium wave thing where you record top of hour looking for top of hour IDs, that's not so bad. But um, you know, and I'm I'm to the mode where I go through my nightly SDR files for the 43 meter band, keep them for like a week or two, uh, waiting in case someone asks, "Hey, did you hear something here? I can go back and look." And then otherwise, they just get purged. Yeah, after a certain point, you just have to. Uh, I mean, with with the size of something like that, there's not many other options. Yeah, I um, it's, I've been meaning to do more with HF myself. Um. The main thing we've been doing right now is uh, captures of uh, large VHF, UHF systems. So uh, like I might have a, a 12 mega sample per second uh, IQ signal that I'm saving. Um, so that way I can replay, say, a, uh, a P25 system. So where it's a full trunking system uh, that has maybe mm -hmm. you know, 10 or 11 channels on it, plus your control channel. Um, and yeah, just the, the size gets away from you pretty quick. Oh sure. Um, I now at VHF, I I guess you can you can you get away with just eight eight bit files. Does that give you enough? Most of the time, eight bits okay. Um, at least for those yeah. types of signals, um, I usually don't run into too many problems. But I mean, the only time I even run uh, an SDR with such wide you know such large bandwidth is generally if it's because I want to capture an entire system because either. I'm in a time-lapse video or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, I like to keep the bandwidth of my SDR at the bare minimum necessary for whatever signal it is I'm listening to. Oh, sure. Because other, well, otherwise, I guess it's just too hard to, to even find the signal. Well, yeah, either the signal could get drowned out by something else. Uh, a lot of these newer SDRs have tracking filters, which is pretty nice. Um, or in other mm -hmm. cases, it's just a narrow signal. There's a little bit of noise and, um, you know, might not necessarily uh, catch it on the waterfall unless you're you're really looking. So I try to oh, sure. to reduce it as much as I can without, uh, you know, affecting the waterfall display too much. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, that's why I like, again, for, for my overnight recordings, I settled on two on 200 kilohertz because that covers the band basically. And it's enough, it's narrow enough that you can see everything and the data files don't get too, too out of hand. I think uh, a two gig files like half an hour. So that's not too bad. I've got a one gig hard drive that I use just for that. Yeah, that's not too bad. I have a, uh, I think it's a 20 or a 50 gig uh, solid state I bought a few years ago. Um, and that's done pretty well as an IQ drive. Um, and I've got the, uh, the speed if I need it. I, I think I may have misspoke. I, I guess I meant to say a 1000 gig. Oh, a terabyte. I, yeah, I have, I have a, <laughs> I've got a terabyte drive that I that that I that I use just for the uh, S that I use just for the SDR data, and um, I'm thinking you probably wouldn't want to record to an SSD. I don't know whether that would. Do, I mean, if you did it nightly, I don't know how that would affect the uh, wear on it. I'm not sure. Oh, uh, it'll probably wear on it pretty hard. I don't generally yeah. do it nightly. Um, usually, when I use that, it's when I'm doing uh, a 20 mega sample dump of something. Mm-hmm. Generally, I'll save to that drive just because I know the space is there for it and the right times are good. Um, right. But then if it's something I do need to save, I'll, of course, uh, pull it off of there. Um, I don't honestly trust that drive too much, but for technical <laughs> things, I use it. Well, that drive, um, it actually bricked at one point, and uh, Samsung had to release a, a firmware update for it. And uh, like three years later, I finally fixed it. So <laughs> it, it works, but I'm, I'm very watchful well, of it. <laughs> I, well, yeah, actually, the terabyte drive that I use to record the SDR data on is kind of the same boat. It, it used to be a, pri- a primary drive, and then it suffered. It started to have some issues, and so I relegated it to this. It's been fine, but it's like, you know, if I were to lose a night's SDR data, it's not the end of the world. Right. So it's like, you know, okay, it's still good enough for that. And hard drive prices have plummeted so much. It's, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. It's just like TVs, um, yeah. stuff that cost hundreds. It's, it's next to nothing almost. It's, you know, maybe it's a sign of how old I am now. But, you know, from, from my, fir- my first computer I owned was an Atari 800 back, I guess, the early 80s, you know. And um, where we are now is just amazing. Well, my first computer was uh, it was an HP uh, Windows 3.0 machine that I upgraded to 3.11. Um, <laughs> it's like 13 floppy disks. Oh, yes. Um, so that was interesting. Um, <laughs> but uh, I remember having... Um... Oh, darn. Oh, I thought I remembered. Sorry, my... Uh... It's completely blanked out there. Um... Shoot. Oh, um, I was going to say, I remember the, the first flash drive I ended up buying, um, just, you know, in terms of talking about, you know, storage cost first, first flash drive I had, it was, um, it was 512 megabytes or it was a two fifty six. I don't remember, but, um, but it was a hundred dollars for that flash drive and a hundred dollars. Now you're probably going to get yourself, uh, Shoot, I haven't even looked in a while. Um, I think the last time I looked at flash drives, $100 was going to get you um, like 200 um, yes. or something. Yeah, I think my, my first flash drive, I think I still have it laying around, was a Sony, and it's a 256 meg, and I probably paid a ridiculous amount. Uh, I was just the other day going through old receipts and documents trying to pick stuff that I've had since the 80s, and I came across some from stuff I bought back then, and I wish I hadn't seen it. Um, <laughs> stuff like, I think my, my first laser printer was two, was $2,000 back in the early nineties, you know, um, and, uh, crazy. I mean, it, computers have come down so much. It's just the deflation is massive. Um, and it lets us, you know, as we've said with the radio hobby, do all these fun things. Um, I mean, I had a, a RTTY decoder back in the 80s on my on my Atari 800, but of course it was an external hardware modem because you couldn't do it in so, in software back then. 
besides right. the fact you didn't have sound input anyway, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you couldn't, it's just the processing power. In fact, I, I remember when I started multi-mode for the Mac back in the late 80s, I guess, uh, that was on a, um, this was before, this was before, well, before the Macs were Intel, before the Macs were PowerPC. So this was back when the Macs were 68,000 based. So it had a 68, I think a 68030 or 68040 processor in it. And it had, it had sound in, in, input, although you could only sample at uh, 20 kilohertz. Um, you, you could sample at 22 kilohertz, but for some reason, Apple sample rate wasn't 22050. It was some really weird number. So it, you know wasn't even half the uh, CD rate. It was off, offset from that. But I remember having to write the code carefully. You know, you're almost to the point of counting cycles, you know, because you didn't have that much time. You know, and... Uh, right. And, oh, I kind of huh. like back when I did programming on the, on the Apple II. You know, you had 48K of RAM. That was it. I mean, you know, you... Uh, Right, you had to be uh, a little more meticulous. I'm sure a little more careful. Yeah, about, and uh, I mean, there's good and bad points. There's of course people who will say, ah, oh, and then you know, programmers today are lazy; they waste memory, blah blah blah. But then you've also got the downside: if you think too much in terms of that back then, you can constrain yourself unnecessarily. You know, if you've got the resources and there's a legitimate reason to use it, use it. Um, you know. Uh, the thing that amazed me right. the most, I was reading an article about, you remember the old, the first, the Atari 2600 game back for the TVs. Yeah, that, that yeah. had a, a 6502 variant. It was 6507, I think. It had 128 bytes. That was it. Had 120, yeah, it had 128 bytes. <laughs> it had, uh, I think the cartridges were 2K, and it didn't have video memory per se. So basically, you were kind of like building the display on the fly, sort of, you know, as the scan line on the TV went down, kind of a thing. Um, and so, talk oh. about really creative programming. You know, you, you know. I can only imagine. I, I give a lot of um. credit to the to, to the folks back then who did stuff like that. I mean, you had to really intimately understand the machine and you know, which I think to a large extent we don't have today and and I I mean it's useful that they abstract things and we don't have to know all the inner, you know, workings. But on the other hand, you also don't know the inner workings. You know, your your computer from if you're writing software even from your point of view is a bunch of black boxes. Right. And I think kind of where we're at with it is we have a larger community of people interested in programming, but a smaller community interested in kind of being a little more meticulous in what they build or kind of setting out with a particular purpose. They've made things so easy that um, almost anyone can pick something up, which is good. Yes, very but at good. the same time, you, you do also have people who could probably do a lot more if they would focus on maybe other aspects of what they're writing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's great that, you know, everyone has the opportunity to write soft, to write software now. And um, um, what's I gonna, now, I've, now, now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> I, knew where, well, I, I knew where I was going and then all of a sudden it's like it's all gone. Um, yep, it just, it just disappears. disappears. Uh, I, get, I mean, you know, from, well, from a programming point of view, I guess the concern sometimes is you've got all the black boxes and which is nice because they do the work and you don't have to worry about it. Except that when these black boxes are in the operating system and then an operating system update comes out and then the black box doesn't work the same way anymore, you know? Right. And you might not even have, uh, you know, updated documentation. Right. Yet. And you haven't done anything. You haven't changed anything on your side. And, you know, it all of a sudden isn't, isn't working the same way. Of course, you've always got the risk of, you know, you were misusing the black box but it still kind of worked that way and it doesn't work that way anymore you know um right <laughs> yeah and that's yeah and, and that's the problem software updates mm -hmm. routinely break my email inbox today 
was full of messages, I think, on the SDR radio mailing list about Windows 10 breaking some audio, something or other. I'm not sure what. But, uh, you know. <laughs> Windows 10 is always breaking something yeah. these days. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, as a longtime Mac person, though, who in the past few years has been doing more Windows stuff, I think Windows 10 overall has been a step in a, generally in a good direction. I find in general it's a little better overall than what I had used in the past. I, I'm liking it more. I'm 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 still kind of teetering back and forth. There's there's aspects about it I really like, and then sometimes they'll make a uh, an update that actually changes how ah, the yes. UI functions, and I, I don't I no, don't like that's that at all. Bad, yes. um, you know, one day I turn on the computer and I have a completely different taskbar. <laughs> um, <laughs> excuse me. Yes, <laughs> the one thing I've run into, and I've run into other people talking about it. Um, was the the taskbar not disappearing when it should, not hiding? Although, yeah, they although I want to say update. the most recent update, <laughs> it seems better now. Yeah, it does seem like it's a little it, bit better than it was. I know. I how like, how can you not make me. that work? <laughs> the other thing that then actually that uh, update then uh, okay now now that I've said I I love Windows 10 now I'm going to go through all the things I hate about it. Uh, <laughs> I started getting my Radeon video driver was uh, sending out like a notification every 15 or 20 minutes. The, the screen would flash black and come back again and then would put up a notification. It had to restart something like, oh, that's not good. So someone su suggested I install the latest driver from their site. I did that and everything's been fine since. So it's it's as though I guess I, he, he said I think the reason was the – I guess the official Windows updates lag behind the manufacturer. So Windows changed something that caused it to not work with the version of the driver they were using. But if you get the latest driver from the website, everything's fine then. Until Windows updates again. And then Yeah. I, yep. I, I had a similar issue with mine. Uh, my OBS completely stopped recording uh, my screen altogether because of some graphics uh, driver issue. I had to update through the regular website, and then the next morning the computer updated again, uh, and it reverted all the changes. Yes. And so that was fun. <laughs> um. Anyway, I'll, I'm uh, okay. looking at the time here. I don't want to take up all your time. Um, we do have about an hour of audio, so I usually right. edit that down to about thirty minutes. Um, before we jump out of here, is there anything else in particular that you wanted to mention or say um, on uh, this episode? Just come visit my website, and uh, you know, like 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 I said before, I've got four, I've got four four kids. So if you want to uh, download and maybe buy any apps, they would certainly appreciate eating next week. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> uh, and you know, also if anyone comes looks at the apps and goes, "Hey, I don't see something. I would like an app that did X," you know. I, I, I love a challenge. Um, I, I really like, I guess I've mentioned to people before that, you know, people ask, what do you specialize in? And I, my answer is I specialize in lots of esoteric things. Um, I kind of like working on apps that are different than what, you know, every, everyone else is doing basically. So Right, it's 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 stuff that's unique. It's with a purpose, and and probably not necessarily something right. that you'll find uh, in many other places. And absolutely, I, those are the most I, virtually everything I, I I do is something that I use myself. And I have to say, it's it's a lot easier to work on an app when it's something you actually use. Absolutely, right, absolutely. I mean, that's how I got started. Uh, with uh with even ruby and stuff is i had something i wanted to build i couldn't find anyone else right. that had there, it so i saying? gotta learn eat, how to make it work your own dog food i think yeah uh, <laughs> i haven't heard but, that one uh, you know basically use what you write <laughs> you know um i i've 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 in the past tried doing right a, uh few apps because somebody asked for it but it wasn't something i was personally interested in and it's and it's and it's very hard oh absolutely anytime and that was always kind of my thing at one point i pondered trying to you know find work in software i'm like you know if i go down that road 
and I learn, you know, this and that, and, you know, I want to make a living doing that. I, I don't necessarily want to do that underneath someone else's roof because then if I have to write, you know, say some big database application that right. just holds a bunch of info, I'm not really going to be interested in that. It's, it's, it's just going to fall on its face. So, um, I, I kind of decided to right. keep that in my pocket more as a hobby than anything. And, you know, that's, if I make money you know, occasionally always nice with it, it always then lets you uh, buy that's a cool few too. extra toys. Big shout out to Chris for actually taking the time to do this interview with me and provide a bit of content to you guys in the process. I really had a lot of fun with it. And uh, since you listened all the way to the end, I also wanted to let you know that I kind of apologize for maybe some of the overlapping audio and other things that uh, you may have had to deal with in this episode. Uh, Definitely wasn't one of my best in terms of my editing. I've been having a lot of issues with software and uh, I couldn't really redo everything with this particular um, recording and I wanted to make sure I got that content out there um, regardless. That being said, stay tuned for the next episode of Signals Everywhere, the After the Show podcast, because we'll be introducing uh, our previous co-host back to the show, and we're actually looking to hand the show off um, more under his control, where he will be hosting the show, uh, and I'll be sticking to just the editing. And my hope is that while doing this, we're going to be able to get a lot more content out there on a more frequent basis, more regular basis, and you guys can enjoy the podcast while... Um, at the same time taking a huge workload off of all the other things I'm doing, um, both in private and in Signals Everywhere. So there's a lot of stuff going on, and I hope that things are going to uh, go very well. I'm really excited to see how we uh, set things up, and I can't wait to see how you guys react to the new content in 2020. So that being said, I appreciate all of you, and I can't wait to see you in the next one.